You are listening to National Security Law Today. Welcome back to National Security Law Today, the official podcast of the ABA Standing Committee on Law and National Security. And before we get underway, here's your weekly disclaimer. The hosts of this podcast are appearing in their individual capacities and not on behalf of any agency or company. So this is it, our capstone episode in our series celebrating the 100th anniversary of women's suffrage by highlighting women's achievements in national security. Now, it's a real pleasure tonight to welcome Trish Rifo, president of the American Bar Association. It's really fitting to have Trish here to end our series celebrating the 19th Amendment since we kicked it off with her immediate predecessor, another extremely accomplished woman, Judy Perry Martinez. But let's talk about the woman of the hour. Patricia Lee, Trish Rifo, is a partner at Snell and Wilmer in Phoenix, Arizona. There she focuses on complex commercial litigation and internal investigations, and she chairs her firm's professional liability litigation group. Welcome, Trish. Thank you. I can't tell you how pleased I am to be here. You guys and the work you do uh, at at the Standing Committee on Law and National Security are one of the true gems of the American Bar Association. I mean that, and I'm delighted to be here with you today. That's really kind of you to say. So my first question was going to, going to be, how do you get to be ABA president? But that's easily answered when I look at your bio. You were chair of our policymaking House of Delegates for two years. You were litigation section chair and the chair of the standing committee on membership. Plus, you were part of the American Jury Project. ABA Day, which is our grassroots advocacy activity, and the ABA Commission on Civic Education and the Separation of Powers. So my new first question is going to be, how come you devoted so much energy to this organization? Well, Yvette, I think you've fully established that I am absolutely a bar junkie, and I, uh, I plead guilty to the charge. Um, what can I say? I love being a lawyer, and I love the organized bar. Um, I am one of those lawyers who loves to be part of organizations where other lawyers are doing interesting things and where I can learn from them. And the American Bar Association has always been that for me. And one of the joys about getting to the place where I get to be president of the ABA is learning even more about the breadth and depth of of this organization. Now, um... Trish, you were appointed by Chief Justice Rehnquist uh, to serve on the advisory committee on the federal rules of evidence uh, of the United States Judicial Conference. So, of course, evidence is obviously central to litigation. And uh, although I'm here in my individual capacity, uh, my daily work involves kind of knowing backwards and forwards every aspect of the federal rules of evidence. Um, But for the law students out there learning this, Can you talk about how the rules have evolved over time and the work that you've done for the committee? Well, the the evidence rules actually are, um, even for normal people, pretty interesting things. Um, So part of the theory behind the federal rules um, and the way the committee approaches its work is that the evidence rules are things that people just have to have literally inside their heads. Um, they, have, they are things you have to draw on instantly, on the spot, on the fly, in the middle of a courtroom, uh, without often a lot of time to go and research the answer. 
And so there is um, a strong preference, at least on the federal rules committee, to not amend the evidence rules absent a really good reason to do so. Because every time you make an amendment, every lawyer, every judge, every litigator in the country has to relearn them. So there's a, you know, a predilection not to make amendments unless it's really important to do so. That said, they have evolved over time. Um, for example, the rules around expert witnesses uh, changed significantly after the Supreme Court uh, decision in Daubert. And so the evidence rule was rewritten to essentially mirror the court's holding in that case. That's one example. Another example is the evidence rules having to be updated to reflect the new ways in which we communicate with one another and therefore the new kinds of evidence that the old rules with old language didn't accommodate as easily. Uh, when I served on the committee, I had the chance to help write uh, evidence rule 502, which among other things, addresses things like uh, inadvertent waiver and ways in which materials can be produced um, for review without waiving the attorney-client privilege. And that came in, uh, in large part because of the costs in significant litigation with lots and lots of quote-unquote documents, the cost of reviewing all of that material for attorney-client privilege. So um, the rules of evidence do get updated from time to time, but only really when there's a good reason to do so. Well, that's, uh, at the risk of appearing to be a nerd, that is really interesting. Um, just <laughs> just uh, um, listening to how these things evolve. Yeah, I would say that a Supreme Court, uh, you know, decision on the, on the rules of evidence is a good reason. And also updating to uh, account for the new ways in which we communicate. Uh, I, I remember uh, cases where we're trying to figure out how to admit Facebook posts, right? And the, the rules didn't necessarily accommodate that since Facebook is relatively new. So thanks for giving that context around the rules. Well, that's right. And, you know, actually one of the more recent ones um, was another sort of interesting conceptual amendment around ancient documents. Well, ancient documents when I was in law school meant something on a yellowed piece of paper, right, that had been kept in a file someplace for a really long time and eventually became sufficiently old that we said we're going to make it reliable, deem it to be reliable just because it's old enough. That doesn't fly anymore when things are preserved electronically. So they did a new amendment to address precisely that, which I think is a really kind of an interesting quirk in the evidence rules. For sure. Um, we're recording this shortly after the death of legal giant Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg. Can you discuss her legacy from your perspective as a woman lawyer and as president of the American Bar Association, especially given Justice Ginsburg's work with the ABA? You know, if you think about the number of Supreme Court justices who would have been in the history books, even if they'd never gotten to the Supreme Court, that's not a very long list but Ruth Bader Ginsburg would have been on that list, even if she'd never gone to the United States Supreme Court. The work she did in fashioning and executing the legal strategy to essentially win equality for women in this country 
was an extraordinary legacy all by itself. And her work on the Supreme Court was sort of, I don't know, act two of an amazing life. Um, either act would have, as I said, put her in the history books. The two together make her a complete, absolute giant. And um, a brilliant mind, a woman of enormous vision and presence, um, wonderful self-deprecating humor, uh, who looked out for um, not just other women, but other people throughout her legal career. And the, the image that I will carry with me from the goodbyes to the justice was the image of all of her law clerks standing on the steps of the United States Supreme Court, waiting for her to come home and being there to welcome her and honor her as she came back to the court. That was an extraordinary picture for an amazing woman. Yes, that was a, a beautiful picture. And we can even hyperlink uh, to that so that everyone can see um, sort of the impact of that. It really was beautiful. And I can say, not just as a woman lawyer, but also as a sister of a chief systems pilot at a major airline, the first one in history, um, that her work really has helped. It's really made it possible for a lot of us to be where we are today. And um, my gratitude personally is enduring. Um, you have also uh, done some work. You've also served as the co-chair of the National Association of Women Lawyers Committee for the evaluation of Supreme Court nominees. Um, now that you're the president of the ABA, um, can you explain why the ABA evaluates federal judicial nominees, what it looks for? Obviously, that's super relevant right now because there is a pending uh, nomination. So for 60 some years, the American Bar Association Standing Committee on the Federal Judiciary has evaluated um, each of the Supreme Court nominations and the nominees for the appellate and district courts um, on the federal bench. And we've done it for uh, all those years because lawyers will talk to other lawyers in a truthful way about a nominee in a fashion that perhaps they might not to um, a federal agent or someone else doing a background check on a nominee and all of the other administrations have found that information to be useful to them. In most administrations, the committee is given uh, the name of the nominee in advance and has the opportunity uh, to conduct the um, background review uh, outside of public scrutiny. Not so much true with Supreme Court nominees, but for district court nominees. Um, and this administration, of course, as we know, has decided not to do um, a pre-nomination uh, review with the standing committee, which is the administration's uh, choice to do. Um, for Supreme Court nominees in particular, it's really important that we understand that the committee does not look at judicial philosophy, does not look at the politics, does not look at any of the things that the press gets itself exercised about uh, for a Supreme Court nomination. 
what the committee does look at, whether it's the Supreme Court or Court of Appeals or the District Court, are the qualifications of the candidate, the experience of the candidate, and the judicial temperament of the candidate. And those are the things that they do enormous amount of work in terms of interviews, investigation, review of background and other written opinions, review of law review articles that the nominee has written, and so on. Um, and their work is done completely independently of the um, American Bar Association. Uh, I am not only not uh, involved in the process, I'm not allowed to be involved in the process. It is entirely done by the committee made up of terrific, qualified, capable lawyers from around the country representing every circuit who uh, engage in this instance for a Supreme Court nominee in a very in-depth process uh, to come to their uh, recommended qualification um, rating of the nominee. Well, thank you for that answer. Um... I'd actually like to ask you about your specific career now. You've had a very impressive career and you've worked on quite a few cases, including several in the financial sector. Uh, and I wanted to ask if any of your cases have had cybersecurity implications, because that's something that's always of interest to us here on the podcast. So could you tell us some examples of how a commercial litigator might find herself thinking about security on behalf of their client? Well, in today's world, I think every single one of us thinks about cybersecurity all day, every day. Um, I'm sitting right now in my dining room, which is where I am connected to, not just to you, but of course to the internet to do essentially all the work that I do, whether it's for the ABA or on my cases. So cybersecurity affects every single one of us. Um, it affects how our law firms operate. It affects what our clients require us to have in terms of um, safety and protection against hacking. Um, every major law firm that I know of uh, goes through um, testing on a regular basis to make sure that our systems um, are protected uh, from any kind of hack from the outside and the poor lawyers get pinged regularly by their internal uh, experts with phishing tests to make sure that we are sufficiently capable of not clicking on links that we shouldn't click on. So truly cybersecurity at this point is uh, something that every single person needs to worry about anywhere in the legal profession, even if the actual case isn't about cybersecurity uh, implications. I sit, for example, on the board of a small house museum, um, and uh, I actually had one of my partners, who's a cybersecurity expert, come in a couple years ago and do a brief for our board about the cybersecurity things we needed to worry about. And a couple of my colleagues thought, oh, gee, are you kidding? What does this have to do with us? We're a tiny little operation sort of in the middle of nowhere. And then the third party vendor where we housed a bunch of our information had a breach. And all of a sudden it was a giant problem, even for a little tiny in the middle of nowhere uh, nonprofit. So it's every place uh, at this point. 
Well, but we have a year ahead of us, and um, I know that you must have an agenda set in your mind um, for what you're going to carry out as ABA president. Yeah, um, so it candidly, it changed a few times in the months leading up to August when, uh, I, when I actually became the ABA president. Um, clearly, the pandemic has uh, impacted just about everything, and I expect every bar president, state, local, uh, or national, has reworked his or her plans as a consequence. So a big uh, chunk of the work that we're doing right now is around issues um, relating to the pandemic, and I would put them in sort of two buckets. One bucket is um, around working to address the unmet legal needs arising out of this pandemic, particularly in our underserved communities. And we have a task force chaired by Jim Sandman, who is the President Emeritus of the Legal Services Corporation, that is working to organize and motivate both the legal services community and the pro bono community to step up and address uh, those unmet legal needs, whether it's around evictions or the increase in domestic violence um, or employment issues. I mean, there are a whole host of pandemic-related issues that, that need uh, our attention as a profession. The second bucket of pandemic-related work we're doing is around how it's changing the practice of law. Um, how much, for example, of the virtual courtroom stuff that we are seeing right now will stay with us permanently? I'm thinking a fair amount may stay with us permanently. And that means lawyers need different skills, judges need some different skills, and we need to think about how to rebuild a justice system in a way that is even better than the one that we had before, because we can't just go back to where we were. Um, but it also goes down to things like, how do we mentor young lawyers in an environment in which we are working virtually? I don't know about you, but I learned a lot about how to be a lawyer sitting in the office of a senior partner when I was a young dweeb and watching how that senior lawyer did his or her work. Well, we can't do that right now. Um, how are we making sure that we take care of our younger lawyers and give them the skills training and the mentoring and all the other things that they need uh, as we did when we were younger lawyers to grow up to be, you know, good and, and terrific um, lawyers. So all of those questions around how is it going to change the practice of law, I think, are deeply important. Um, two other things that I think are extremely important and they're sort of more long term have to do with what I keep describing as the two experiments that are literally happening in front of our eyes. One is what's going on with the bar exam. And the other is what's going on with changes in the regulation around the practice of law. If you look at the bar exam, the results of how different states addressed the bar exam because of this pandemic are um, all over the map. Every state, it seems, came up with a somewhat different approach. We need over time to study those differences to answer the question of whether the bar exam, as we know it, does or does not protect the public from lawyers who are not competent to practice law. 
Um, and so that is, I think, uh, a really important long-term project for the organized bar and the academy to undertake. Same is true with respect to the states that are experimenting around regulation um, uh, in the practice of law. My state here in Arizona is one of those. Um, pretty soon we will have a rule that will permit non-lawyers, for example, to invest and be owners in law firms. Well, over time, we're gonna need to measure the metrics uh, around these sorts of experiments to answer the question of whether they have uh, allowed us to uh, close the justice gap or not. And we need, we're convening a um, uh, group next month uh, of states that are experimenting in this area together with members of the academy to talk about what are the metrics we can measure, what are the metrics we need to measure, so that again, we come up with some actual answers to whether this stuff that's being tried works or doesn't work to close the access to justice gap. So I just wanna follow up, uh, President Rifo, with uh, some comments you made about how the current COVID uh, situation where we're working off of Zoom has actually increased your ability to serve as ABA president. Can you talk a little bit about that? Well, you know, I think I'm the only um, ABA president since the Wright brothers who hasn't already been on a whole bunch of airplanes to do her job. Um, I have been holed up here in Phoenix since this all started, not so much anymore because I'm not willing to get on an airplane because I wouldn't be, but the truth is there's nothing to go to. There aren't bar events, there aren't gatherings that, it, that I could go to even if I wanted to get on an airplane. So um, I sit here and I Zoom around the country and sometimes around the world. And the truth of it is that I am able to be in front of vastly more people in a week because I don't have to spend all the time that I used, would otherwise have spent just getting from point A to point B. Um, I can drop in on something for 30 minutes without um, any trouble or challenge or difficulty at all, where in an old world setting, I would have had to have driven to the airport, waited an hour to get on the airplane, flown to someplace, gotten off the airplane, got in a cab to get there, and you know, you see my point. So we're trying to be smart about how to leverage the moment in which we find ourselves to create whatever advantages we can, and that's one. Um, and it's, it's a different way of doing this job. And I certainly um, miss the unintended um, interactions that you get by literally being in a room with other people. I surely miss not having the opportunity to have the kind of fellowship and getting to know one another stuff that in a, uh, another day I would have had. But we are trying to turn uh, the lemons we've been given into whatever lemonade we can, and that is one positive. Thank you. And because it is completely unavoidable, talking about the here and now, it is election season as we're recording this, and we're especially interested in the ABA's initiative, Poll Worker Esquire. Could you tell us about that? I am really excited about Poll Worker Esquire, so thank you for asking me about that. Poll Worker Esquire is an initiative that we've launched 
to try and persuade lawyers, law students, and other legal professionals around the country to volunteer to be poll workers in their um, local jurisdictions. Uh, in my jurisdiction, for example, poll workers are needed ahead of the election, um, during the election, and might actually be needed to continue to help with counting and whatnot uh, after election day, depending on um, how much can get done in advance. This is a great opportunity for people who are civic-minded, and I think all lawyers are by definition civic-minded, and who want to help, which I think lawyers fall into that category. Um, it is a great opportunity for them to volunteer their time to help make sure that this election is fair and runs the way it should. We can all agree that every single eligible American citizen should be allowed to vote without obstacle and should be able to have their vote counted. So if you go to canivote.org, you will get um, great information on how you can volunteer in your local jurisdiction uh, to, to do your part to help make the election go the way that we all hope that it will. So we will add a link to ambar.org slash vote and canivote.org in the show notes, as well as your biography. If you can believe it, listeners, we were not able to mention everything that uh, President Repo has done in her illustrious career. Well, I appreciate uh, the chance to be here. And I was thinking as I was getting ready for this that um, I'm personally not a national security lawyer, but I come from a Navy family. Literally everybody in my family except me um, was a Navy pilot. And my brothers deny this, but when I was a girl, uh, and um, my dad and both my brothers were on active duty as naval officers. On Christmas Day, I was asked to leave the room because the three of them had uh, unintentionally veered into classified material in my living room. And I was told to go in the kitchen <laughs> while they completed their conversation. Both of them deny that ever happened, but they're wrong. It did. So that's my national security experience. <laughs> I, I think that counts. That counts. We're going to give credit for that. Trish, thank you so much for being here with us tonight. We love to hear what you have to say. And these are wonderful programs. Thank you for your service uh, and for taking on these issues right now as part of your agenda that are so important. Well, thanks to all of you for your work. And thank you to our listeners for tuning in to NSLT. Keep tuning in to hear about news, legal analysis, events, and all other things national security law. You should also check out our show notes for a video featuring all 10 of the women who have served as ABA president over the years discussing the centennial of the 19th Amendment. And in the notes as well, you can find some cybersecurity resources for small firms from the ABA Cybersecurity Legal Task Force. Given that October is Cybersecurity Awareness Month, we want everyone to be able to see that. Remember to hit that subscribe button on your app of choice. Be sure to send us comments or feedback because we want to hear from you. You can find us on Twitter at ABA NATSEC or send us an email at nationalsecurity at americanbar.org. We'll be back next week with more content, listeners. Be well, everyone. Remember, we're all in this together, even though we're apart. The views expressed on national security law today have not been approved by the House of Delegates or the Board of Governors of the American Bar Association and accordingly should not be construed as representing ABA policy.